0: Good morning, Emmanuel. Open your Bibles as we continue to worship our Lord to Jeremiah chapter 32. If you stick your thumb in the middle and go a little to the right, you should find it. If you're in the New Testament, you're totally lost. Go back a little bit. Um, Big book, Jeremiah chapter 32. We'll be spending uh, most of our time this morning in the second half of this chapter, but I do want to read the entire chapter uh, to you this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. And at that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, behold, I'm giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. This was Jeremiah's message that got him thrown in prison. Jeremiah said, verse 6, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hananel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and I weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase, containing the terms and conditions, and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, Baruch is uh, Jeremiah's assistant throughout his ministry, the son of Neriah, son of Masiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God! It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds." You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders and a strong hand and outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land, which you swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it. But they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mines have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass and behold, you see it, yet... You, O Lord God, have said to me, Buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it with the houses on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they did to provoke me, their kings, their officials, their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned to me their back and not their face and though I have taught them persistently They have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. No. Therefore... Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, It is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promise them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you are saying It is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money. Deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord." Are you trusting the promises of God? Specifically, are you trusting in God's promises that pertain to the future? Promises of what will come to pass, promises that have yet to be fulfilled and experienced. Are you trusting? I'm not talking about giving mental assent. Cognitive affirmation. Yes, the Lord said that. I'm talking about trusting, resting upon, leaning on, anchoring your life, building your house upon these future promises of God. In the busyness of your life, are you trusting the future promises of God? Or do they just seem unrelated to my present needs? As you live in the midst of that long, difficult trial, wondering if it'll ever end, are you trusting in the future promises of God or do they seem just too abstract to bring you any real comfort? As you endure persecution, as you stand for Christ, do you trust in the future promises of God or is it all beginning to feel not worth it? As you navigate this life, in this fallen and frustrating universe, feeling the curse at every turn, are you looking to and trusting in the future promises of God? Or is your faith faltering, is your vision of heaven blurring, and is your hope beginning to fail? It's not that you're walking away from the Lord. You're plodding on, you go to church, you sing the songs, you open your Bible when you have time, you try to pray. But growing weary and well-doing, it's becoming a real temptation. You know God is mighty and powerful, but boldly believing these promises, now seems a little fanatical. You know, you, you've grown up, you've matured in your Christian faith from those early days when you would have believed those things. You might even still utter those big, bold sentences to the Lord and when you're praying to Him, praying according to His promises, asking those things that you desperately desire to take away that pain in your body, the hurt in your memories, and to restore yourself and set you free from that sin, sin that is clinging so closely. But underneath your words, there's this unspoken unbelief that it's maybe too hard for God. Are you trusting God? the promises of God. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet during the last days of the nation of Judah's existence. He lived through such political turmoil as he saw his king Josiah get killed by Pharaoh, the leader of a neighboring nation. He saw Babylon ascend to par under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. He saw Nebuchadnezzar come to Jerusalem's gates and take away people back to Babylon, including Daniel and his friends. He saw the king after King Josiah, King Jehoiakim, act in folly and try to rebel against this king, causing Nebuchadnezzar to come back again and lead a second deportation away, disposing of King Jehoiakim and putting in King Zedekiah, the king we read of in this story. And by the time we get to uh, our text at hand today, Jeremiah has been ministering for 40 years. One scholar summarizes the message of Jeremiah as the Babylonians are coming. That's Jeremiah's message. Earlier in his ministry, it would have been the Babylonians are coming, so repent. Turn back to the Lord while there's still time. But as soon as he saw that that was futile, the Lord gave him a different message. The Babylonians are coming submit to the Lord's punishment and the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. You can imagine how that message went on. He was considered a traitor to the nation, one who spoke against their iconic symbol of the temple. He was put in the public stocks and even thrown down a well at one time, left to die. He was slandered and opposed by false prophets who sought to contradict his message and mislead the people to believe Lies, and after 40 years of this ministry, we find him imprisoned under house arrest in the court of the guard in the king's palace. It's the 10th year of Zedekiah's reign. If you know your Bible history, you'll know he only has 11 years because, in that last year, the siege that the Babylonians have around Jerusalem causes the city to crumble. Zedekiah is taken away, the cities are burned, the temple is destroyed. Currently, the Babylonians are besieging the city and famine is in the city and disease is spreading and people are dying all around. This dire message of Jeremiah's 40-year ministry is on the brink of fulfillment. Soon the Babylonians would destroy Jerusalem, bringing an end to the nation as it was known. And into that, the Lord brings a message to Jeremiah and tells him to buy a field. Now, by all accounts, this would have been very strange. It made no sense, no financial sense. It was a complete waste of money. Even if Jeremiah was a teenager, let's say, when he began his ministry, and he's now 40 years into his ministry, it had been revealed to him that the exile was going to last 70 years. Ergo, he's not coming back. He's not going to get back to the land. He will die. He will not get to physically experience the return of the people from exile. And yet he's told to buy a field as a sign of the Lord's promise that that transactions will happen again. Fields will be bought. Houses will be bought. Add to that the public confusion that must have ensued as Jeremiah's done this. Jeremiah, you've been saying the exile is going to be lasting 70 years. You you said, you you wrote a letter to the exiles that they're gonna be there a long time and to build houses and plant vineyards in Babylon. That's where the future is. And you're buying this field here? You're one of those lying prophets. You've lied to us all so you could buy our property at a cheap rate. Would have been confusing that the Lord asked him to act this way. On top of that, what's Jeremiah thinking when his cousin shows up? says, hey, Jeremiah, you wanna buy my field? Uh, you mean in Anathoth? Yeah, you remember growing up as a kid, that field? It's yours. The one that the Babylonians are probably encamped in right now because <laughs> it's south of Jerusalem. I mean, they are surrounding the city. I mean, he's got to just be confused. What is this word from the Lord? But in spite of all that, I think it's significant to note that Jeremiah obeys. He does what the Lord said. And then it is interpreted, if you look in uh, verse 15, he gets some answer of why he is to do this. Verse 15, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought. Okay, this is just one of those signs. Sometimes the prophets were given words to speak and sometimes they were given signs to act out. Okay, Lord, I get it. There's, I'm doing a sign. You know, It's going to give hope to some people that there's some sort of future here. But he's still confused. And we see that beginning in uh, verse 16, that he goes on to pray to the Lord. He's given a promise that he doesn't yet fully understand. And so what does he do? He turns to pray to the Lord. Do you pray when you doubt the promises and they seem confusing, irrelevant, never going to be fulfilled, never going to come true? Or do you just shift your trust to something else? I need, I need money to get through this problem. I need wisdom to get through this problem. He's thinking, Lord, don't, don't you see we're besieged? You want me to buy a field? What good is that? And if God's promises feel irrelevant to you, follow the example of Jeremiah and get on your knees and say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Now, Jeremiah's prayer can be summarized in this way. Lord, you are mighty. Lord, you are awesome. Lord, you created the world. Lord, you brought us out of Egypt. Nothing is impossible. Nothing is too hard for you, Lord. But we're sinners. We've never obeyed your law. And so I think if if, if we understand that, the heart of Jeremiah's question is, Lord, you can promise all day long that you're gonna do something And I believe it because you're mighty and you're powerful and nothing's too hard for you, but we can. not We're the problem. We're sinners. We get in the way of your promises. Lord, don't you know? Okay, we're gonna buy fields again. We're gonna come back and then what? We're just gonna go into exile again because we're gonna come back to the land and we're gonna disobey your law again. Nothing's going to change unless the people change. This is the crux of Jeremiah's doubt. Nothing is too hard for the Lord, but this is too hard for the people, and the people will cause the Lord's promises to not be fulfilled. And the Lord, in his kindness, responds to Jeremiah, first with a provoking question, and then largely with an affirmation that, Jeremiah, you're right, the people are sinful. Look with me in verse 26. This is the Lord's answer. Jeremiah's question I obeyed Lord I bought this field but I just don't get it nothing's too hard for you but haven't you looked at this people we're a bunch of sinners you said you'll bring us back but we're probably just going to mess up again I don't see how your promise can be fulfilled when the people are like this the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah behold I am the Lord the God of all all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Look at the end of verse 17. There, Jeremiah says, nothing is too hard for you, Lord. And yet at the end of your prayer, you're questioning why I told you to buy a field. So let me ask you a question. The Lord says to Jeremiah, is anything too hard for me? Are you, are you really believing that theologically correct utterance that you just made? But do you really believe it? The Lord says, Jeremiah, you are speaking to the Lord of all flesh, everything and everyone and every speck of dust in this universe answers to me and is under my sovereign command. This is who you are speaking to. Do you really believe anything is too hard for me? When you pray, do you know who you're praying to? And if you can grasp that you're talking to that God, the only God, the mighty God over all flesh, do you believe he's listening to you? When you're faltering and doubting in the promises of God, one of the first things you need to do is remember who you're praying to. This isn't your schoolyard buddy who pinky promised you and said he was gonna do something. This is the Lord. He has made a promise. You can take that to the bank. Is anything too hard for him, Christian? Oh Lord, will you restore our marriage? Is anything too hard for me? Lord, could you, would you bring bring my child back? Is anything too hard for me? Lord, will the blind see? Is anything too hard for me? Lord, will the tongue of the mute be loosed? Is anything too hard for me, child? Trust me. Lord, will the pain ever go away? Will the memories stop haunting me? Is anything too hard for me? And while we don't know if God in his sovereignty will answer some of these specific requests, we would be dishonoring to him if we did not trust who he is when we bring these requests to him, he is the one who created the universe. When we pray to God, we pray to the one whom nothing is too hard. That thing that's in your head right now that you're like, yeah, but but that's too hard. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Let's pray bold, big prayers because of who he is. The rest, I don't have time to read it, but the rest of... Uh, the Lord's response up until verse 35, the Lord basically affirms, but Jeremiah, you've got a point. The people are wicked. The people have never rebelled me. You did strike on the crux of the issue. How can I fulfill my promises when pe- the people are like this? How can I restore everything and bring the people back to the land so that they would trade and trade houses and plant vineyards again? How could I do that with a people like this? They've done nothing but disobey me and provoke me to Anger. You can imagine Jeremiah hearing that. That's right, Lord. That's what I'm saying. You get it. That's what I'm thinking. So how can you say we'll buy fields again? I feel like you made me go act as Sinai, but there's a problem. But the Lord's response continues. There's more to God's story that Jeremiah hasn't yet grasped. And these following verses, oh Lord help us, have to be some of the most breathtaking words ever spoken. They're some of the greatest, most comforting, most assuring, most loving, most profound, most awe-inspiring and worship-inducing words ever heard. And here in Holy Scripture is revealed to us the very heart of God. Look with me in verse 37. Yes, Jeremiah, the people are sinful, but behold... I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and great indignation. I will bring them back to this place. You're looking to the people. Notice all the eyes in this passage referring to the Lord. Jeremiah, you're looking to the people. They're going to mess up again, but the Lord says, I will gather them. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart. They won't be in their allegiances. They won't be going after other gods. They'll have one heart for the Lord and one way. This way is the conduct of life. They will walk in the way of the Lord. He will give them that way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. Listen to this, church. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. Those people, Jeremiah, I won't turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And even more so, I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in the land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul." There is no obstacle in the way of the Lord fulfilling His promises, not even the sinfulness of people. The Lord will restore all things. Nothing, the Lord says, is too hard for me, Jeremiah, not even restoring sinners as wicked as these people. But the people have been driven away. I will bring them back. But the people are too sinful. I will give them one way to walk in. We're going to break the covenant again. This covenant will last forever. We're going to provoke you to anger again, but I'll never turn away from doing good to you. What if we turn away from you? I've made sure you won't. We'll be too much of a burden to you. To the contrary, I will rejoice in doing good to you. This this is all too much yes in fact it is and I'm doing it with my whole heart and my whole soul this is the only time those words are used of the Lord we're called to love the Lord with all our heart and soul and mind but here he says with all my heart and my soul I will bring my people back and ensure they stay faithful to me in this everlasting covenant and put them in the land in safety nothing is too hard for me Jeremiah Today, it may look like your world is falling apart. But the Lord says, I am making all things new and nothing's going to stop me. Are you trusting in these sure promises that one day all things will be made new? Maybe you're not trusting in these promises because you've never known a God like this before. Maybe you think you're too sinful. And you've spent your whole life giving your back to God. Maybe you think God wouldn't be interested in a person like you, or that you have to do something to make yourself desirable in the eyes of God for Him to even consider you. Your life is a mess. You've ruined it by your sin and the sins that have been done to you. You can relate to the situation of being in a city besieged in disease and famine, but you've grown pessimistic and completely hopeless that better days could ever exist. And if they did, you certainly won't see them. But believe today if that's you today believe believe that there is a god and there is none like him there is nothing too hard for him your situation is not too hard for him you are not too hard for him your sin is not too great for him he can forgive the chaos in your life is not too hard for him he can restore others may have cast you aside and treated you as worthless but this god restores what was broken with all his heart and all his soul and delights in the people who are his. Believe today in these promises and turn from your sin and be saved. Now Christian, we know these promises are pertaining to the new covenant. From Jeremiah's perspective when they were written, they are in their entirety future. And yet sure nonetheless, But we might forgive Jeremiah if he thought, okay, Lord, I I believe one day, yeah, sure, you're going to do this, but it's not going to occur in my lifetime, so what's the point? Hear these words. Calvin said, we ought not to measure the faithfulness of God by the extent of our life. We ought not to measure the faithfulness of God by the extent of our life. And yet, I would like to add to that, we can measure the extent of God's faithfulness by our resurrected life. The book of Hebrews speaks of those who died in faith, not having received the things promised. This included the prophets of which Jeremiah was among. Jeremiah died and did not receive what was promised, but, by God's, but God's faithfulness is not measured by the extent of our life. God's faithfulness is not measured by your present circumstances. Jeremiah was under house arrest, but God is faithful. Later in the story, Jeremiah will actually be kidnapped and taken to Egypt against his will. It's going to get worse for him, but God is faithful. Jeremiah never got to enjoy the land that he bought, yet God is faithful. God is faithful because one day Jeremiah will rise from the dead and be among those whom the Lord has regathered and brought back to the land back to the new heavens and new earth where everything is restored. Christian, how much more ought we to trust these promises in our current situation? We live after the days of the new covenant that has been inaugurated by Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. That's when it started. Inaugurated then, We live in what some people call the already, not yet. This is just fancy pants language to say that we already experience some things and some things we don't yet experience. It's already the blessings. We already experience some things, but not all of it yet. Our situation is different from Jeremiah. He didn't experience any of these, yet God is still faithful. But we experience many of these new covenant blessings today. For those of us who are in Christ, We are in this everlasting covenant with the Lord, this one. We are his people, and he has put within you a heart to fear him so that you will never turn away from him. And he's put a desire in your heart that you would walk in that one way. And what will it result in? You're good. That's what the Lord has done for you. And get this the Lord is currently rejoicing over doing good to us and will not stop doing good to us. And we are told that all things, because I know some things are in your head right now, that hardship, the cancer, the heart attack, the financial trial, the difficulties with your child, the loneliness, the war in your country, or the shame of public sin, all those work together for our good. Do you believe that? These are already the blessings that we experience, the already part of the already not yet help our unbelief. Now, if you're anything like me, you're probably thinking, Johnny, I, yeah, I know I'm a Christian. I, I do believe that. I just, I just can't imagine the eternal God never turns away from doing good to me that, that, that he rejo- the Lord rejoices over doing good to me. You don't understand. I'm I'm a sinner. I've I've let him die and I've turned my back on the Lord. I've worshipped other gods. You're right. You are unworthy. You are a sinner. But you're running into the exact same problem that Jeremiah was running into. He he looked at the people and said, oh, this this might be too hard, these people. The Lord said, nothing is too hard for me, not even the people. Is anything too hard for God? Is it too hard for God to rejoice over someone like you? No, believe that. Do not dishonor God by not believing this truth, no. Rejoicing is a very, very technical term, and it just means very, 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 very happy. So what? This is the Lord. This is the heart that we get to see of the Lord. You ever been very happy doing something? Maybe you like working with your hands. Maybe you like building something. Maybe you've, whatever it's been, you like to do things. You've been very happy. You can relate to that experience. Maybe to a child, you've Planned a great birthday party for them. You've got all the surprises ready and made the food that they like just right. And you've got, you know, the, the little gift bags of their favorite cartoon character, and you put all the presents in there, and you're just, you're just, oh, you're giddy. You're like, this is fun. I'm gonna make they're gonna be so happy. That's the Lord to you. He's 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 excited, he's rejoicing, he's happy because he loves you to do good to you. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And if you need more reasons to believe that he rejoices and is glad in doing good to you, more than just a simple statement of God's word, remember Christ Jesus, crucified for you, who took your sin and shame away. He inaugurated the new covenant by his blood. There was a death that had took place In other words, Jesus made such a relationship between you and God possible because of his death in your place. So Jeremiah, in one sense, was right. The sin of the people was a serious problem. And while nothing is too hard for God, including restoring all things and bringing sinners like you into relationship with him, sin must be dealt with. But Jesus, by the blood of the new covenant, has paid for our sins. God can freely rejoice over never stopping doing good to you. Christian, believe these truths and these promises for the good and health of your soul. Believe them for the endurance to get through today. I mentioned these new covenant blessings. Some are already and some are not yet. We are waiting, right? There's still pains, there's still hurts, there's still things that we're going through that we won't one day. If you're groaning, if there's grief and pain in your life, remnants of the chaos of this fallen world that trip you up, if you're parenting children with sick bodies, you have strained relationships with your family, the weaknesses of your own flesh. Trust in His promise that He will make all things new. Look at the end of this chapter. The last sentence of verse 44. This is the not yet for us. This is what we put our hope and trust in. That there is coming a day I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. There's coming a day when your own eyes will behold that restoration. There's coming a day where you will feel, you'll walk on the sod of the new heavens and you'll touch the plants. No decay, no sickness, no pain, no death. Christian, set your hope fully. Set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed to you on that day. Are you trusting in the promises of God? Give up the lie that your present circumstances can invalidate God's promises. Give up the lie that these future promises somehow don't apply to you. Give up the lie that the that the Lord rejoices in doing good to you doesn't apply to you, that you got second-rate Christianity. Trust them because nothing is too hard for Him. And trust them because they are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, these are Your people. We are Your people. You know our strugglings. You know our thoughts. You know our failings. You know our weaknesses. You know our doubts. And you meet us there, Lord, with words of comfort. Would your Holy Spirit, Father, take your words and plant them deep within each of us that we wouldn't balk at the fact that You are a Father who is rejoicing over doing good to us, that that kind of love You have poured out on us. And let us endure, as we set our hope fully on grace that is coming, let us endure with hope whatever You have called us to in the present. In Jesus' name, amen.